Well, welcome. Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, you're probably lucky because I'm nobody special. Um, my name is Dustin, and, and I am one of the folks who gets to hang out at this amazing place we call Hydrant. And last week, this week, and over the next two weeks, I'm going to be the one that gets to hang out with you from this angle, because Tim and Anita, the, the lead pastor and worship pastor of Hydrant, are on sabbatical. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask. You probably won't get any good answers, though, so just ask. <laughs> but good morning. Um, it's interesting to be back here two weeks in a row. Uh, an opportunity for me to speak to Hydrant is an opportunity that I don't take for granted, but admittedly, it's something that only comes up every once in a while, and I was okay with that. So when I said yes to Tim asking if I would speak four weeks in a row, I, I don't know that I quite understood what I was getting myself into, but nevertheless, we appreciate you being with us today, as many of you were last week, especially on what could be the tail end of a, a holiday weekend. Um, so... Awesome. Awesome. Um, now, one thing that hopefully I was able to, to disclose last week about me is that I'm not one that likes to just kind of tell you what to believe, how to believe it, and then send you on your way. Um, in fact, what I like to do is to create dialogue around questions. Hopefully good questions. Um, but nevertheless, dialogue around questions that allows for the space necessary for us to be able to wrestle with what is, what could be and what God might be asking us to do in the meantime. Now, I didn't know if that worked or, or not last week, and, and honestly, I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to being pretty self-deprecating, but when I got home last night, or excuse me, rather last Sunday, and began to prepare for an event that we were going to have on that evening, I wondered, did it make a difference? Does it matter that we ask questions and have asked to create this space? And and so as I got to the, the place where the evening began, and, and we were fortunate to have several from our life group come over and begin to close out 2019's life group with us, we, we sat down in a circle, and unbeknown to me, they began to talk. Um, and the cool thing was is that they not only brought themselves, folks from our life group, but they brought some of their teenagers. And so in this kind of circular imagery, we, we sat down around some couches and in the floor, and we began to ask some of the same questions that were posed last week. See, if you remember the questions that we had, what, what does hope look like for those who are hopeless? And how do we step out of the vacuum that it's so easy for us to live in and to be with others? That, that question of how do we plan for something that's going to be a journey and not just a, a quick trip? What happens when it's our neck on the line? And what do we do with pride? See, what I saw was teenagers and their parents wrestling with these questions in a space that was sacred. And so what I want to do first and foremost this morning is say thank you to you, Hydrant Church, for creating for protecting, for maintaining a space in which we can sit with children, parent, family, teenager, and we can wrestle with the hard questions. Not looking necessarily for some black and white end-all, be-all answer, but looking for enough space and time to be able to hear God's still small voice. Thank you for that. And so as we begin this morning, let's take a moment to pause so that we might be able to hear that still small voice. Will you pray with me? 
God, to say that you are good is, is probably devaluing who you truly are. You are beyond good in ways that we never may understand. But Father, you have created us and called us good in ways that we are not quite deserving of, but yet you call us deserved. So Father, be with us, your creation in these moments. Speak through us in this time and open us in this space. For it is in the name of the one who was and is and is to come, we pray. Amen. I like stories. I made that much clear last week. I like sitting and hearing good storytelling because it allows me to step out of the space that I'm in and into a space that can be. I like stories that are told especially well by good storytellers because they grant me something that otherwise I don't think I can have, a connection. Last week we looked at the narrator of Genesis' story of of Abram, uh, an individual called by God to become something more who, who is told, you will be blessed and you will bless others. And we saw how that story so quickly turned from Abram being a blessing to others to a curse to a few. It's amazing how the storyteller in Genesis does this. He, and admittedly it probably is a he that would have been writing these stories, he tells these stories in such a way that we might think of it simply as a coin. Two sides, but yet the same substance. Two images that may seem to rival one another, contradict even, or even complement one another. A coin, nonetheless. We see the blessing and the curse. We see this over and over again, and if you pay much attention as you read through the book of Genesis, you find that this is not the only place that that this is done. In fact, as we bring ourselves up to the story that I want to tell you today, we've, we've actually got to make a pit stop. See, a few weeks ago, Tim spoke on a passage that's one of my favorite passages of, of all time. And it, and it comes to us in this point in Genesis in which things have really gotten a bit murky for Abram and his wife, Sarah. See, as you remember from last week, God promises them a child, progeny, beyond measure, descendants that one would sooner be able to count the stars of the sky than they could the number of generations. A great and amazing promise, but there was a problem. Abram and Sarah were old. Not just aged, but elderly to the point beyond which one would expect them to be able to bear children. But yet the promise of God reigns true. Well, post those stories that we told last week, what we find is that Abram and Sarah struggle for years and years and years, eventually getting to the point in which they still hear the promise that God has given, but they wonder if it's going to come through the vehicle in which it was guaranteed. See, in the ancient Near Eastern tradition, it it was common for one that could not conceive a child if they were people of wealth and property, that they would take a servant, usually a young woman, often called a handmaiden, who would then become the wife of the patriarch. That person would then go in and conceive a child with said patriarch. And the child that was born would not be the child of that servant, but would be the child 
of the wife of the patriarch. Abram and Sarah, as you probably already know, they do this. They bring this young woman named Hagar into the process. And, and as she bears a child, issues begin to come. Rivalry is created. Strife is, is there between Sarah and, and Hagar. And eventually it gets to this point in which Hagar is told she no longer belongs. She and her son Ishmael are no longer going to be part of this family. So Abram kicks her out, and she wanders into the desert, and as she gets to the desert and she falls on her face crying, she realizes something. Nobody sees me. Nobody sees me. Now, for many of us, this seems kind of like a rhetorical notion. Nobody sees me. Of course we're seen. But we also kind of know what it's like to be unseen. In Hagar's story, she is not only unseen by those around her, she is unseen by the ones who have been her family. But then something happens. According to that narrator in Genesis, the coin has a second side to it. And God, God Almighty, comes and speaks with Hagar and says to her, I, I see you. Hagar then does the one thing that's done in Scripture, the only time it is done in Scripture, and she names God naming him Elroy, the God who sees. One coin, two sides. But see, the narrator in Genesis is not done with this. And, and as we get to this story that we are going to hear about today, we get to this place in which there may come a time in which we're confused. See, the story I'm going to tell you this morning is one that we've heard Numerous times, both in church and, and out of church. It's a story of, of such common nature that we may assume that we already know how the story is going to continue and how the story is going to end. But I ask you just for a moment to dispel that notion. To forego the conclusion that you're going to draw before the first words are even spoken. To step back long enough to perhaps hear with new and fresh ears what it is that God might be saying to us in this moment. As we get there, though, I want to ask one question. What is it like to feel unwanted? What is it like to feel unwanted? Years had gone by. Two things had remained the same. One thing had changed. What had remained the same was that God had continued to promise Abram and Sarah a child. The second thing that had stayed the same was that they had no children. Now, one thing that had changed, though, was that God had met with Abram and had actually said to him, Abram, no longer will you be known by this name Abram. I'm changing your name. And so God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And, and in the Hebrew, Abram means father, and Abraham means father of many. It, it seems like a subtle, almost innocuous thing, but yet it changes the narrative and it changes the story. Now, Sarah's name, for all intents and purposes, is also changed from S-A-R-I to S-A-R-H, which doesn't really designate a big difference, but yet God also changes her name, and reiterates this promise to them that, that you will 
have children. Not just child, children. It doesn't matter how old you are. It it doesn't matter how barren you seem to be. You will have children. This is an amazing promise, but yet the reality is Abraham is now a hundred years old. A hundred years old and still waiting on the promise. But in Genesis chapter 19, that begins to change. See, in Genesis chapter 19, a day is on us like any day. I could probably not preach the same message in December that I could in July because Genesis chapter 19 opens on a day that is hot. Hot probably like we know a July summer to be in North Carolina. Hot like 97% humidity, which is ungodly, by the way. Hot. <laughs> and in the heat of the day... Abraham finds himself hanging out, as is common, in his tent. They don't want to overexert themselves. They want to be efficient as they can be. But yet, he finds himself sitting in the tent. And as he sits, he sees something. Rather, he sees some ones. He sees these individuals that are walking through his property, a very uncommon thing to do at that point in the day. And so Abraham, in seeing these individuals, reacts in a way that's likely unorthodox as to how we would react. He first sees them and runs towards them. He Second, he invites them in to take a break and rest. Third, he gives promise of food and drink. Fourth, he, he asked them to sit down and to have their feet washed and to have a load taken off. And fifth, he and Sarah get together and prepare a lunch. Now, now don't forget, these, these individuals in the story in Genesis 19, they are strangers. He, he doesn't know them. He doesn't owe them anything. In fact, if anything, they seem to be trespassing upon his land at a time of the day in which one would never be out in the sun. But for some reason, Abraham reacts differently. For some reason, he, he shows this amount of hospitality that, that I don't know that I am capable of. He treats them with kindness as if one might treat their own family. And In fact, I would posit that he treats them better than he would treat himself. In seeing them and reacting in this way, Abraham sets up for us this amazing image of hospitality. And so they stay. And while they're staying, they begin to talk with Abraham. And they start this conversation with a few questions about he and his wife and about the children that they may or may not have. And and Abraham responds to them and and says, We have no children. And that's when something curious happens. These strangers that have been wandering through his land turn and say, You're right. But you will this time next year. This time next year, you will have a child through your wife, Sarah. Now the response they give is, what we might expect. There's, there's laughter. Abraham is astonished and, and silent. And In fact, the, the strangers even question what it is that they might be laughing about. <laughs> it opens us, the audience, up to the possibility of God's promise finally coming to fruition in a season in which God 
had planned it to. It's amazing what storytelling can do for us when we hear what happens to another. A promise that was given 25 years prior to this moment will finally be given its fulfillment. Remember last week, I asked the question, how do we prepare for the journey? Because for most of us, if we were given a promise, we would expect the results immediately. If not immediately, within seasons that are very close. If, if not seasons that are very close, at least within a foreseeable future. But imagine a third of your life away in which you are given a promise by God and still fail to see the fulfillment. But everything changes in this moment. And the amazing thing about this change is the person who is receiving this promise and in Abraham and in Sarah, how they react, how they respond to these strangers. See, truthfully, according to this story, they don't know who these people might be. But yet they act in such a way, they behave in in such a, a pattern that we're left scratching our head and wondering, what's going on here? See, to fully understand what might be going on here, perhaps we need to even venture into the New Testament, into the book of Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews says something to the effect of this. It matters how you treat people. Even strangers, because truthfully, people in the past have entertained angels without even knowing it to be so. See, that writer coming from the 13th chapter of Hebrews is not just speaking about Abraham and Sarah, but is speaking in a general term of how we as Christians might treat people. The framework that we might follow for the stranger. See, I, I don't know about you, but the notion of entertaining an angel to me seems very easy. If I knew that the person standing in front of me was an angel, a messenger of God, I would spare no expense. I would roll out the red carpet. I would do the best that I could in food and hospitality. I would give of everything inside of me to treat that messenger with care. But truthfully, do we ever know? Really, when we think about it, do we ever know? And, and if I'm being really honest, is that type of hospitality something that I can just click on or click off at a moment's notice? Or is it not maybe perhaps the outpouring of what's already inside of me? second part of today's story. The other half of, of that coin begins in Genesis chapter 20. In this second half of the story, we begin in the ancient world in an area likely near the Dead Sea where twin cities of great prosperity once existed. In a time in which wealth and prestige were measured by one's cattle, one's land, one's servants, these two cities stood in seeming opposition of that model. 
These cities are full of people, men, women, children. And it's also the resting place of an individual that we've come to know as Lot, the nephew of Abraham. See, Lot, as you may remember, journeyed with Abram and Sarah back before they were Abraham and Sarah and journeyed with them as far as the promised land. But during the intermission between last week's message and this week's message, the land became too small for both families. Abraham and Lot were forced to separate. Lot choosing the city, Abraham choosing the country, they both go their separate ways. See, the hinge that connects these two stories is the messengers, the strangers. Because after they have this conversation with Abraham, after they sit down to dinner and and they do this weird kind of bargaining over what it is that's about to happen, they elect to stand up and to leave and arrive at these cities. Upon their arrival, they're greeted and and met by Lot, who is sitting at the edge of the city gate. And and as they are met by him, he responds as if he is cut from the same exact cloth of his uncle. He ushers them in, invites them to eat, sets up a place for them to rest, brings out the finest of the fine. He welcomes them into the city. But Lot's not the only one who lives in this place. See, like his uncle, Lot shows hospitality, but the rest of the city may take a bit of a different stance. See, according to this story, after Lot has established a place of safety and sanctuary for these weary travelers, the town folk come out. The Hebrew here is a bit ambiguous for Most translations, it says all the men of the city came out, but the word that is used could actually mean people. So could possibly it be men and women? Regardless, they come forth and they come to Lot's door and they knock and they beat and they yell and they scream. And they yell and they scream these words. Let us have those strangers Bring them out. We want to show them how we feel about their presence here today. We want to know them. Now in every language, there's a turn of phrase that describes a way in which we might softly say a phrase that's not, well, acceptable. A phrase that may have a double meaning, and and in English we call this a euphemism. So, For those of you who are literary gurus, a euphemism is simply replacing a phrase that means something harsh with something that is simply less harsh. And that last thing that the citizens of these cities said, we want to know them, that's a euphemistic phrase. What they're really saying is, bring out these strangers, we want to sexually abuse them. Now, there's a lot of detail to this story that we're not going to get into today. I would love to be able to get into how how Lot tries to protect 
these strangers by offering to them the ability to to be safe while he puts his own daughter's safety on the line. I would love to tell you all about how these strangers in a miraculous way blind all the townspeople. I would love to tell you about how the safety that comes to Lot's family comes at the cost of his wife's blood pressure as she has a little raise in her sodium. I would love to tell you so much about this, but for those of y'all that just got that, hopefully we'll... (laughs) Pause for a second. I would love to tell you all about those details, but in doing so, I think we might miss the point that the narrator is trying to hit today. See, truthfully, when that story is paired up against that coin, that one side being Abraham's showing of hospitality, what we see from these townsfolk from the other angle is the lack thereof. In fact, mind yourself for a moment this. What is the most inhospitable way someone has ever greeted you? Multiply that by ten. You find yourself in these cities that we rightly now know as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now as we get into a part in the message today in which I know it can become a little bit, well, difficult. I want to give you a disclaimer from Dustin. To the best of my understanding and the best of my knowledge, I want to dispel a myth that I was raised upon. Because oftentimes when I heard the term Sodom and Gomorrah as a child, it was immediately likened into homosexual behavior. Now as I've aged and studied, and I would believe, though many would probably dispute this, grown a little bit more aware and knowledgeable, what I have found is that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not at all about homosexual behavior. In fact, what it's about is inhospitality to the point in which God is so angry that God destroys. And this is why I think that. See, the the first point is, when we look at this story, what we find is that all the men came out, young and old. Or, if we look at the kind of ambiguous language, we find that it's not just men. Men plus women. They come out to greet these strangers in such a way that they show that they are united. Now, simple math says that not every single person who's in this town can be homosexual. The the second part, and maybe this is a little bit more concrete, in the ancient world, when you disliked someone, when you wanted to show someone you were better than them, you did so by shaming them. In, In battle, armies would often pour salt across one's land so that they could no longer use it. They would take possession of of people and such. They did this in order to shame and intimidate. Now, I don't have to ask deep questions about this, but imagine with me for a second that two strangers have wandered into this city. What is the one thing you could do that would produce the greatest amount of shame in the shortest amount of time? Third, When we look at this story from other references within Scripture, what we find often is that God is ashamed at the way these cities acted. That God reacts in such a way that it's not about this idea, this this notion of, of homosexual behavior, but that it's really about the way that they treated the strangers. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50 just as an example. This is what the scripture tells us. It says, 
Now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So friends, today I propose this. The crime of Sodom and Gomorrah is the failure of hospitality. It's being people of malice, hate, and anger, arrogance, and pride to the stranger. Can you see this with me for a moment? Can you see how these two stories balance one another out? On the one hand, you have Abraham, this individual of promise who, in the heat of the day, runs out to strangers, greets them with food and and with rest, and, and does all this without even knowing who they are. On the other side, what you find is this city of detestable pride and arrogance that that doesn't want those that are not from around here to be in here. And in fact, if they step within the borders of this town... They will be put to shame in ways that are so detestable that we ought not even talk about them. And that leads us today to the place that we were led to last week. A a place of question, of dialogue, a, a moment in which we can step back long enough from these stories as we process through what they may mean for us that we can ask good questions. Again, if you know much about me, you you know that I like to pose questions not because I want the answer, not because I think the answers are clear or that I think that they are simple, but because I believe they create for us the space necessary for dialogue in our family systems, in our life groups, in our churches, in our offices, in the places that we are with the people that we are with. I believe questions allow us to draw closer to one another. So today, as I did last week, I want to propose for you five decent, I won't say great, I won't even say good, questions. Question one. What does it feel like to be unwanted? I asked you to chew on this a few minutes ago, and if you're like me, you probably already forgot what I asked you to do, but... Chew on this with me for a moment. What does it feel like to be unwanted? Many of you may can think back to times in school or in work and in places of pleasure or leisure that that you have felt as if you do not belong. Abram in this story here makes every concession that he can to maintain a presence in which that feeling of unwantedness is absence. What does it feel like to be unwanted? Question number two. On the opposite side of that, what does it feel like to belong? For many of us who have found our way to Hydrant Church for more than a couple of minutes, and for those of you who've only been here a Sunday or two, what we have found and what you will find is the place in which belonging matters. I don't know how to put it into words. I'm not that articulate. 
I wish I had the ability to sit here in an eloquent speech and tell you exactly what it means to belong, but I, I almost believe that it's beyond words. It's a feeling, it's a notion, it's that atmosphere that's created. What does it feel like to belong? In the story of hospitality, the, the one thing that hospitality attempts to do greater than any other characteristic is to allow people the space in which they feel that they belong. So again, that second question, what does it feel like to belong? Question three. If we can wrestle with question one and question two and hold them in tandem, then question three is natural. How do we embrace the stranger? How do we embrace the stranger? See, last week we talked about this notion of a vacuum. For most of us, we have been given the ability to live our lives in such a way in which we have small circles in which we exist in. We can control the variables and we're not kind of in this place of vulnerability where somebody else has to maintain or take care of us. We can leave church, we can leave hydrant, we can go home and close our garage doors and sit in front of our TVs and act as if the world is no different around us. But yet when we meet, texts such as the Hebrews text. When we hear sermons from Christ in which he talks about the love one is to have for the stranger, the question becomes, how do we embrace the one who is stranger? Question number four. How do we go against the majority? Looking at Sodom and Gomorrah from a much more removed perspective. What we find is that this city is full of individuals who hospitality is not part of their repertoire. In fact, inhospitality has become so enmeshed in what they do and how they do it that the group, the majority, want nothing more than to shame these strangers. I've been there before. I've I've been in the midst of a situation in which the majority is going in a direction in which I don't feel is the best direction. In my younger years, it would have likely been that I would have followed along with said majority. It's easier. You don't stick out. It seems as if that pattern is is what is going to be rewarded. It's hard for, for us to go against the majority. And in fact, I want to revisit that quote that we had last week from Walter Brueggemann in, in which he says, the promises of God are never easy to believe in practice because they call upon us to practice them in the midst of those who practice more attractive and seemingly more effective ways. See, for us, the call of hospitality, the call in which we have been given since long prior to when we arrived, is not an easy one. Because it's practiced in the midst of a people of inhospitality. It's practiced in the midst of a people who would rather be in a vacuum, a closed-off system in which they control all the variables, than an open one in which the stranger is invited to become kin, the lost is invited to find home, the hungry given food, the naked clothed, the one who is beyond connection given connection. It's easier if we just go with the flow, if we go with the majority. 
Thus, I ask the question again. How might we go against the majority? And that leads us to the fifth and final question of our day. How much are we willing to risk for the sake of God's call, for the sake of the gospel? I can't answer this for you. Not that I can really answer any of the other questions, but I certainly cannot answer this one for you. How much are you willing to risk to embrace the stranger, to show hospitality? How much are you willing to risk when it's your neck on the line? How much are you willing to risk when you find yourself in a situation in which the majority is going a different way than you know to be the way of truth? How much are you willing to risk? Most of us, at least right now, between the the hours of 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., would probably say, we'd risk it all because we're in church and we do that. But when it really comes down to it, the question is, how much would you be willing to risk financially? How much would you be willing to risk socially? How much would you be willing to risk with your personality, with your politics? How much would you be willing to risk with what it is that you feel is yours for the sake of another? How much would you risk for the sake of God's call through the gospel? Five questions. (laughs) Stories that we hold in tandem of hospitality and the lack thereof. Image of a family that welcomes the stranger versus the community that ostracizes and shames. That's what I've got for you this morning. And my hope is that what it does is it creates the space and the time necessary For us to be able to have good conversation. To dive deep when given the moments. And to go deeper than we have before. Even when it seems to be a bit uncomfortable. See I ask this again. Not because I believe that these questions have some sort of a remarkable characteristic. Or that they're great great questions. But simply because I realize that for me. Questions are what dive deep into who I am. Allowing me to become what God has created me to be. So this morning as we close, I invite you to do the thing that I invited you to do last week. And simply spend the next few days wrestling with these questions and this story. Will you pray with me? God, we wish we had the words to say that would transform the world around us. But we don't. What we have is your words that have already transformed it in front of our face. So God, as you have transformed the world, transform us into the image of your Son. The one who showed not just hospitality to the stranger, but was willing to risk it all. God, thank you for this space and for this time. 
and be with those moments in the future that we continue to wrestle so that we too might grow into what it is that you've caused us to grow to. For it is in the name of the one who was, is, and is to come, we pray. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out, and we'll see you again soon.